0: You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalms 24. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 5. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his Son, of his salvation. Please proceed. Good morning. I would like to start this morning by asking you a question. And it's this question right here What if I asked you or people who know you to write your eulogy? Now, I know you're probably thinking, Tyler, I I really don't want you to bring me down this morning. I promise you, I'm I'm really going to try hard not to bring you down this morning. Uh, I'm going to try really hard to be encouraging, but I really do want us to think about this soberly for just a minute. Um, And I want you to think more about the other people. What if I asked you or other people who you know to write your eulogy, what would they say? What would be one of the first things that they say? Everybody that's in your life, if they were gonna speak of you, what would they say about you? And let's start with our coworkers, and we're gonna go through a little bit of a list here. Would our coworkers say about us, something about our work ethic? Would they say something about our sense of humor, our attitude, kindness? Would they say, I barely knew them at all? They sat over there in their cubicle, and I sat on my side, and basically we nodded at each other, as we passed each other every now and then, but that was about it? I know we don't ever want to speak ill of the dead, but, but it happens. Would somebody say, I'm sorry they're gone, but they were kind of difficult? Or they were easily offended. Every time I saw them, I was wondering if there were something else, if there was going to be another issue. What would they say? What would they say about you or about me? What would our church members say about us? Would they say we're encouraging? Would they say... Example? Would they say your good friend? Would they say that we were merciful or kind or gentle? Would they say, I barely knew him? They were kind of just like everybody else. We kind of just passed by and nodded. They sat on the south side. I sat on the north side. They sat in the balcony. I sat on the floor. Went to church with them for 40 years, but I just didn't know them. Or would they say, I'm sorry they're gone, but... They were kind of judgmental of me and my faith and, and lots of other things about me and finding issues with me. What about our family? What about our spouse? Would our spouse say we were the most loving spouse or would they say, they just never seemed to be really that happy? They seemed to kind of be agitated a lot or frustrated or, or just grumpy. With, uh, what would our parents say about us? What would our children say about us? I think that's a very important one as well. Would our children say, it was the best mother and the best father that I ever had. Or would they say, mom and dad just didn't ever seem to be that happy. Or, or they seemed to be really tough on me all the time and I never could do anything right in their eyes. What would they say? What about our brother or our sister or our close friends? What would anyone say about us if they were going to, Say the first thing about us after they heard that we had passed. I wonder what it might be. And really, the main point that I want to ask in this question today is this. How long would it be, and even more importantly than how long would it be, would anyone ever say something like this about us? Would this come, one of the first things come to their mind to be, their life was about Christ. Now you can say that any way that you want to say that. You can say, well, they were one of the greatest Christians I've ever met. Maybe somebody at your work said, I, I, don't, I don't go to church much. I don't like church. But I'll tell you what, that person, they lived what they believed in. Would somebody say that about us? What about this? Would people say things like this about us? And I ask you to put your name, fill your name in the blank. Gary's been great at giving us this idea over the last couple of weeks. But I ask you, fill your name in the blank. Tyler's mind was completely transformed Romans chapter 2 or 12 verse 2 when Tyler's face was unveiled for the first time and he saw it, that Jesus Christ was the truth when, when the fog was lifted the veil was lifted he was so transformed that he he was like Jesus Christ second Corinthians 3:18 when Tyler became a Christian it was like he was a new creation he was a completely different creature so different than he used to act before put your name in there would somebody say that about us second corinthians 5 17 would somebody say tyler lived a sacrifice life luke chapter 9 23 and 24 if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself take up his cross daily would we would somebody say that about us would they say that we take up our cross every day would our brothers and sisters say that about us You see, I hope you always know that when I ask these questions, every time I step up here and every time I step in a class, I am stepping on my toes first. And this has been something that has been cramping my heart, not just bothering me, but cramping my heart for a a long time to come now. And I don't know that people would say that. I don't know that that would be one of the first things, and I don't know how long it might take them to get there. Would somebody say, it was no longer Tyler, it was Christ? And I look around the room and I ask you the same thing. Would anybody say that about you? Would anybody say it is no longer Miss Karen? It is Christ. It's no longer Alicia. It's Christ. Anybody else in this room? Would anybody say it's no longer Garrett, Isaac? I guess I could call all of our names. It's Christ. And the true question is, if not, why not? As we look at the Scriptures and we see it and we understand what we are called to be and what our God has told us that we will be transformed into, why is it that we would not, why people would not say that about us and why that wouldn't be one of the very first things that they would say about us in our lives? And this is the main idea and the topic that I want to talk about today. I truly believe it's because of this word right here. Mediocrity. I want to say I was excited earlier in the week. I'm usually the guy that um, fills in on Sunday nights. It just kind of happens like that. And and I don't normally get to see the kids. Um, they're usually in classes and different things like that. I always get to see my my young adults, but I don't get to see the, the kids a lot because they're, they're gone. And I thought, oh, I'm excited. I'm gonna get to see them this week. And then I walked out Thursday afternoon and I was watching my daughter get on the bus and I watched all the other kids get on the bus and leave to go to CYC. And so I realized that That wasn't going to happen, but I also know that there's a lot of the elementary kids in here. And there's a lot of other young people that that couldn't go on the trip, and I'm glad you're here. And and I know a lot of times we don't speak to you guys in in our services. And I want to speak to you this morning a little bit, just as I speak to everyone else, because I'm going to tell a story about uh, when I was in elementary school here in just a minute. But I know that word mediocrity can be a big word. It's a hard word for me. But what I truly mean when I say that, why wouldn't people say that about us? It's because somewhere along the way in our faith, in our life, we begin to believe that we're just average, that we are just common or of common value, and that we are just like everyone else out there. Maybe even that we just don't want to be that different. We want to just kind of be like everybody else out there. And and, and we get that, that, that belief down deep in us. And I want to tell you about the first time that that happened to me. And it happened to me when I was in elementary school. Now I'm not a person who can recall lots of stuff from when I was really young. I just can't remember it very much. I remember big things that stand out in my mind, big events, you know, something that was really exciting or something that was really terrifying. But this memory has been something that I can vividly call back as clear as day for as long as I remember, and I didn't understand it for a long time, but now I do. And I wanna start by saying this, I asked you a question earlier, what, what would we say about people, about everybody, but what would our, we say about our parents? And I'm glad to say that my parents are here today and that I can say this before them, but I grew up in about as wonderful of a childhood as I could possibly hope for. I had loving parents and I tested them at that and I, I know that they have unconditional love for me and they've always supported me and I am so thankful for them and, and all that they did for me in my lives, in my life. Um, but one thing that I wasn't always thankful for was that they were very strict with me. And I know if there are any young people in here today, uh, when I say strict, you know that uh, I mean that uh, mom and dad, they, they give us a lot of discipline. Um, and. Obviously, when I was younger, I didn't like that a lot. I remember when I was in high school and I remember that a lot of my friends could go out and they could stay out late, late into the night. I didn't realize at the time that maybe they didn't have somebody at home that really cared if they were there or not. But I remember I had to come in awful early. And I remember I used to say to my parents when I was you know flustered or upset or whatever, and I'd say, you know what? Whenever I have children, I'm gonna let them stay out as late as they wanna stay out. I'm going to let them go wherever they want to go, and I'm going to let them do whatever they want with whoever they want. Now, how many of you in here believe that I let my 13-year-old daughter and my 9-year-old son go wherever they want and do whatever they want? Nobody. If you do, I want to sell you something. I'm I'm just kidding. But uh, of course I don't. Of course I see it now. Of course I understand the discipline that they gave me was love. And it was some of the greatest love you can give because we don't want our children to be angry with us. I don't want my daughter and son to be upset with me, but I know sometimes it's better to tell them no than to tell them yes, but also know that in discipline, a lot of times our parents are trying to teach us what our potential is, what our value is, what we can do in life, and in one of those ways, my parents did that with me in elementary school, and My mom was a teacher for 30 plus years, my dad was assistant superintendent, my brother became a doctor. You can say that education is important in our family. And I'm kind of a black sheep of the family in in a lot of ways, but I grew up in a time where it almost seemed like um, you could either be good at sports, or you could be smart in school. I'm so glad to know today that people understand you can be extremely good at sports, but you can be extremely smart as well. But for some reason, that was somewhat of a belief. But as I grew up and and as I was coming up in school, just like my brother was, uh, it was expected. My parents told me, you make A's and B's. You can do it. Bring home A's and B's. Don't bring home anything else. If you do, you're going to be in trouble. And up until the time that I was in fifth, fifth grade, that was... That was fine. It was kind of easy. I was able to do that. But when I got to fifth grade, if, if any of you have boys as children, you'll understand what I'm about to say. I got easily distracted. Um, girls can get distracted. I understand that. But boys, we have this wonderful knack of getting very distracted very easily. And I did. I, I got to being silly. I wanted people to look at me and laugh. And I wasn't paying attention like I used to. And halfway through the nine weeks... Um, of course my mom already knew this but the teacher told her "said now, if he doesn't pay attention he's going to make a d in class i skipped right over c and i was headed for the d and my parents got me at home and they said now listen this is not going to fly you need to get this together you need to pay attention we're not going to accept this you will be in trouble if you bring this d home and so i went back to school obviously and i was I was worked up there for a little bit and thinking, oh, I better, I better do better. But I'm in fifth grade. I'm immature. I'm silly. And about a week later, of course, I'm back to being goofy and silly. And as, I, as young kids do, but also as parents and as, as adults do, we do this a lot of times where I kind of just blocked it out. And I thought, you know what? It's not going to happen. It's not going to come. I'm just going to keep focused on what I'm doing right now and not worry about tomorrow. And, and it, it won't ever come. And guess what? It came. It did, and I remember that day vividly. I went to North School, Some, a lot of you know North School. Um, And I remember sitting down, and used to be, today there's just a paper. The students just get a little paper and it says grades on it. But used to be, if you'll remember, the report cards were really nice. They were almost like a card like you would get for a birthday or something. They were white and thick, and you would open it up and it'd have your name in there and all your grades on there. Some of you may remember that. And I opened that thing up right there at the end of the day, and right down there it said, in that one subject, D. And I remember my heart just dropped down into my stomach, you know, and I started feeling sick, and I'm starting to get a little shaky. And, and of course, I'm blowing things out of proportion as a fifth grader, but I'm starting to think, my parents, they're going to kill me tonight. This is it. I'm not going to be here tomorrow. You know, they've already told me I'm in big trouble, and, and the bell rang. And I remember getting up and all the kids laughing and having fun and I was just not. I was down, my head was down. And I walked out the door and I looked down the hall and, and of course the fifth grade hall at the time, I think it's the same as over there by the gym. And I turned out and I was looking straight down to the entrance doors and sun was shining through bright. And I kind of just looked up and there I saw my mom with her arms crossed, just standing there waiting for me. And, and of course, you know, like I said, it's hard for my legs to move, my head's down, and I'm trying to walk to her, and it, it's just one of the hardest things. And, and I'm thinking, you know, those terrible thoughts, and blowing it way out of proportion. You know, she, I may not even make it home. She may kill me in the car and put me out in the ditch. You know, I, I'm, it's over. And I get down to her, and, and she says, let me see it. And she knew what it was. And so I put my head down, and I hand it to her, and I know she's looking at it. Now, here's the thing I say about this. My parents were upset. They were angry. They, they were disappointed in the fact of the grade that I made and they punished me and they gave me the discipline that they told me they would and, and I got grounded for a long time and I didn't like it. I, I, the same thing happens with my children today. But there was something in my mom that, that day that I noticed that I did not understand. And I could tell that she was sad. I could tell that there were tears forming in her eyes. And I could tell when I got home that my dad was sad, and I could tell that they were somber in a way. And I thought it was just because of the grade that I would made. But what I didn't realize is that they were sad for a different reason. They were sad because they had a belief and they had a fear that because I had made the grade that I did, that I was willing at that moment to accept that I was just average, or common, or even below average. And that fear that they had, which I didn't understand until much later, and I'll explain to you in just a minute when I finally understood it, but that fear that I had, it came true. It came true because I got home, and I'd blown it so out of proportion that I didn't die, obviously, and they weren't going to kill me, but they did do what they said they would do discipline-wise. But in my mind, I started thinking things like this. It wasn't their fault, but it was mine. And I started thinking, well, maybe my parents realize I'm just not that smart. I'm not capable of being above average. I'm just common. Maybe it's time to expect that I'm just a middle-of-the-road student. I'm mediocre. And that was the day. I remember it, just like it was yesterday. remember very few things. But that was the day that I allowed mediocrity into my heart and into my life. And once I did that, once I allowed that mediocrity into my heart, I was able to infect the rest of my, my life in all kinds of ways. And every time I would come up to a barrier, something that was really hard, that I didn't know if I was able to push through and, and pass, every time I did that, I'd come up to a barrier, I would say to myself, maybe you're just not. Maybe you're just common. Maybe you're average. Maybe you're no better, um, or maybe you're, you're lower ability than everybody else. And I thought that in lots of different ways throughout my life. But I want to specifically say to you what happened, especially to you young kids in here. I went on through middle school. I went on through high school. I went on even into my first two, two and a half years of of college. And I believed it. I believed it completely. You're just mediocre. You're just average. You're just common. You may even be below average. And I couldn't ever do anything because every time I came up to something, a barrier where I couldn't believe that I could get over it, I, I made myself believe that I couldn't. And it took me, and I don't have time to explain it all this morning, I I quit going to school and college and I went out to Colorado and I worked as a ski instructor for several years. And then I saw somebody get really hurt who had no future whatsoever. That's all they knew. They had no way to provide for themselves. And I I thought, I need to change. Something needs to happen here. And I came back home and I told my parents, I want to give this one more try. I want to try one more time to see if I can do this. And I said, I want to go to Freed Hardeman. I want to go and I want to be around people of faith. I want to try to understand what I believe. And I just want to make an effort. And so I got there in first semester and I said, I'm going to try as hard as I can. Every time I come up to a barrier in life where I don't think I can pass it, when one of these tests, one of these things, even if I mess up, I'm still going to keep trying. And I don't say this to brag. I'm not doing that at all. I'm doing this to make a point. But at the end of that semester, I was so nervous. And I opened up that card. But I took 15 hours that year, or that semester, and I saw A, 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 everyone. And I'd made the dean's list, and I had no idea what a dean's list was. I didn't even know there was a dean's list. And so I, 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 I thought to myself, I can't wait to get home. I cannot wait to get home. And, and I went home, packed my clothes, and I jumped in the car, and I called my parents and said, I'm on my way home. I got something to show you. And I just couldn't wait to get there. And I finally got there, and I... Went and I handed it to my mom and dad and I said, look, and I was at 24, 25 years old at this time. It took me forever, a long time to get here. But I finally handed this to them and I saw in them finally what I didn't understand many years ago. I saw their joy. I saw the joy uh, of the tears that they had and they spoke the words to me and they said, now you see what we've always known. Now you know the potential that you can meet and that you can reach. And they were so excited for that because of all of the years that that doubted and I questioned. Now, I tell you all of that because I want you to think about this. When did you first let mediocrity into your heart and into your life? Was it like me? Was it in school? Or was it um, possibly in sports? Was it in relationships? Was somebody in school hateful to you and mean and belittle you and tell you that, you weren't that pretty, or you weren't that handsome, or whatever it may be, and harsh with you, and you begin to let that feeling into you, was it in relationships, dating, whatever, and people put you down, was it at work, and people put you down and make you feel you're just common? I'm just like everybody else, I'm just average, and more importantly than that, how did it happen, and I want to talk about how it happens as a whole to all of us. And then I want to talk about how it happens to a whole as all of us in our faith. But how does it happen? And I want to tell you the story that I read about a redwood. Um, I read this in a news article recently. Um, This redwood tree fell in a California forest and you may be asking me why I'm telling you about a tree falling in the forest if you've ever seen redwoods you understand the majesty of them and how how awesome these things are but when it fell they were able to look at it and see um, by the rings how old it was and they noticed that that tree was 400 years old that thing was massive and it stood for a long time And and the story went on and it said it wasn't lightning it wasn't the massive storms that had blown through year after year after year that came through and broke that thing and knocked it down. It wasn't the winds. It wasn't winds that, that, that again, beat on it and bent it and bent it and bent it until it broke. For 400 plus years, outside forces had tried to, to beat on that thing and knock it down. But then it asked the question, what destroyed the redwood? And I bet a lot of you in here know exactly what it was. It was insects. It was tiny little bitty things that had found its way inside termites and it had got inside of this massive tree and it had devoured it and eaten that tree from the inside out. That redwood had stood for over four centuries. All of this stuff beating on it from the outside but when it collapsed it was because of the attack from within. And the scripture tells us about things like this with our faith as well. It tells us in Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. And a little bit more of a common English translation of that, guard your heart above all else for it, does, for it determines the course of your life. And it really does. Our heart, our heart, our mind, and the renewing of our mind or the not renewing of our mind and what we allow inside of us and all those things that beat on us from the outside that may tell us over and over again that we try to withstand. Eventually, if we let it in, we've got problems. And why does God's potential in us get derailed? It's because we let mediocrity into our heart. And if we let it in, that seed is going to be there and then it bleeds over into our faith. Don't you guys remember in the beginning when you first became Christians? I do. And I get reminded of it often, and I really appreciate getting reminded of it. I, I, I didn't think I would as much as I do, but I have college students that come that have never come to church, and I have the opportunity to get to know them and to share with them and then to be an instrument of God to, to help them to become a Christian and to, and to walk that path with them. Uh, but more recently, I've had the great opportunity, uh, one of the best days of my life, the first half of my prayer was answered. I have two, and that's my daughter and son, but the first half was answered when Hillary decided to become a Christian. And I remember there with her as I, I was uh, baptizing her and she was coming out of the water and I was hugging her and we were crying together and we were praying together in that moment. But I remember that feeling, and I think we all do, and, and we, we all remember the, the joy and the freedom that comes. Uh, from sin in that moment, but I think one of the most important things, one of the reasons that we love it the most is because in that moment, that is when we begin to realize all the potential that God has created in us and finally begin to live the life that God wants us to live, the life that he has prepared us for all these years growing up. And we think, I can't wait. I cannot wait to see what God is going to do in my life. I can't wait to see the changes and the way in which He's going to transform me and help me to grow and become this this person that He wants me to be. But somewhere along the way in that path, that seed, maybe that's been planted there from other things, those outside forces, but truly, let's, let's just be honest, from evil, from the devil himself that wants to get inside of us and tell us, just be like everybody else, just be common, just be mediocre. You're average. And somewhere, maybe we say to ourselves, I've sinned too much. I just can't do what God wants me to do. I'm just not comfortable with this or that or whatever. And I'm just, I'm just going to go along. I'm just going to show up and then I'm just going to be like everybody else out there. And we forget. We forget all kinds of scriptures, but we forget things like Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We forget things like that. The potential and the power that he has in it, And I, I bring it all around to this. I talk about mediocrity in this, but I bring it all around and I talk about this in, my, in our C20 class all the time with all of these young adults. And I, and I try to beat it into their brain because I'm trying to beat it into my brain because I know that I'm like this in so many ways. But what I, what I call it, what I term it is comfort level Christianity. And what I mean by that are things like this. I'll go to church, but don't ask me to go to class. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm not comfortable. What if the teacher asked me a question? What if I have to sit by people that I just don't know, and it's awkward and weird? I'm not comfortable with it. I'll go to church, but don't ask me to serve. Don't ask me to read scripture. Don't ask me to serve in the nursery. Don't ask me to cook people meals. Don't ask me to go visit at the hospital. I'm not comfortable with that. And even more, I'll come to church, but don't ask me to go out there and be any different than anybody else. And don't ask me to share my faith with people because I'm just not comfortable with that. It's just not something I'm comfortable with. I'm worried that I won't know what to say. And honestly, let's be real with ourselves. If we don't know what to say, we need to study the Bible more, we need to read the scriptures. We need to know what they say so that we can do what we're commanded to do and give a defense to people of what we believe in and what is supposed to be the top priority in our lives. But we get comfortable. And let me ask you, is it say anywhere in the Bible, have you ever read anywhere where God says, I want you to become a Christian and then I'm going to start transforming your life and I want you to join me in this transformation and and we'll, we'll work at this together. But... When you come to that place where you say, I just don't feel comfortable, don't worry about it. You don't have to go any further. You, you just stay right there. I it's okay if you don't learn here. It's okay if you don't mature here. It's okay if you don't grow here. Just, it's okay. Just be comfortable. We all know it doesn't say anything like that in the scriptures. I know it doesn't say that. But yet, I still act like this. We know what it says in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 16, where, he, where Jesus speaks of the church of Laodicea. And he says, You're not hot, meaning you're not on fire for the Lord. You're not living the t- your faith as your top priority, and you're not cold. You don't stop going to church and you don't just not believe in me or anything of that nature. You are comfortable, you're right in the middle. And what does Jesus tell us about being mediocre in our faith? I want to vomit you out. It's like me. I, I'm, a, uh, I'm a very picky eater. I do not like all kinds of different foods. My wife used to try to get me to eat stuff. Now she just doesn't even try anymore. Um, but like if I get something that in my mouth that just is awful tasting, I not even gag, but I'm going to spit it out in the trash. And that's literally the idea of this. Jesus is saying, if you want to walk around and live a comfort level Christianity, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's like a story that we read in Scripture that we often use as a children's story, but it has so much more of a rich text, and it is the the story of the Judge Samson. And I want to read for you here, and, and if you want, you can join along with me in your Bibles. But in Judges chapter 13, uh, in verse excuse me, in Judges chapter 13, in verse one, uh, one through five, it says. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now I'm going to remind you of that in just a minute. And I want you to see how this is exactly what we are talking about. It's about comfortability, and that's what... Uh, they're saying in the scripture here. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord delivered them into the hand uh, of the Philistines for 40 years. Now there was a certain man from Zor uh, of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children. But you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. And no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin uh, to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Now real quickly, when we look at the Philistines and anybody who conquers the people of God, we often think of them as just being really harshly evil. But honestly, if you look at a historical look at the Philistines, they weren't as tyrannical as we think they were. They they didn't impose extremely harsh laws and punishments and enslavement. They ruled by economic means. And they imposed a lot of taxes, few laws, and they even let the Jewish people, the Israelites, have a little bit of autonomy. And one of the commentaries I read, it said Israel was on a leash, but it was a golden leash. And this was the problem for them. Now think about us in our world today. Their problem was that they had got comfortable with the pagan world around them, and they thought, this is good, this is fine, this is average. We're not the chosen people of God. We're not to be different and set apart. Let's just be comfortable, and let's just let them rule over us and everything's fine. This is where that came in. But at the same time, look at Samson. Look at Samson and excuse me, in his life. He was, had the Nazarite vow, and in that vow says, don't cut his hair, couldn't touch dead bodies, uh, not, to drink dead, or not to drink alcohol. And you look at that and you think, what a promise of great potential. What a power that this would have been for him. How special could Samson truly be? But when I read Judges chapter 13 and verse 5, it bothers me. It has always bothered me because it says, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. Now, God, in all his foreknowledge, knew exactly what Samson would do. But my question to you is this. What if Samson would have said from the beginning, I'm not going to be mediocre. Look at what God's potential is in me. Look at what I can do. Look at the power that He's given me. I am going to devote everything to Him. He will be my first priority all of my life. If he would have said that, I truly believe that that Scripture could have said, and He will deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines but that's not what happened. And you can go through the list and look at it. Samson, he gets comfortable with mediocrity in his life, with all the pagans around him. And I'm not gonna go through every one of these, but his lust, his touching the lion, his games and making bets and dealing with cheats and liars. He leaves his wife for a long period of time and she's given to another and he comes back and he gets so angry, he starts burning up the fields. Then the men of Judah, look at them. They're not behind their judge. They say, hey, we're so comfortable. The, the, Israel, the Philistines rule over us. Just, just quit messing things up. Quit trying to be different. Let, just stay right here and let's just be comfortable under these people. Then in chapter 16 and verse 4, Delilah. And you think about how he possibly was given over to a debased mind at this point. And, and, and look at, we, we look at that story and we say, how can you not see what she's doing to you? But he's so comfortable in his mediocrity that he's just whatever. And by the end in chapter 16 and verse 20... The worst part of this, she wakes him up again. Samson, they're here. He thinks, I'll go out. And look at the very last part of that. It says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. That's what cramps my heart. I wonder if we get so comfortable sometimes with the world around us and so comfortable with just being mediocre in our faith. Would we even know if the Lord left us? Would we know? And that brings me to the scripture for today. Psalms chapter 24, verse 3 through 5. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up His soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. This picture is basically what that scripture is talking about. It's Jerusalem, and it is the south side of the Temple Mount steps. And why this is so important is in the ancient times, the Jewish people, including Jesus, would ascend this hill, this large hill, and at the very top of it would be the place of worship. So in order for them to worship, they would, like it said in the beginning of the scripture, ascend the hill uh, of the Lord. And what would happen a lot of times is the priest would stand at the door. It would be like all of our elders standing at at the doors, and, and the ministers as well, just standing at the doors as you walked in. And as the people were walking in to come in to approach the hill to worship, this is what they would shout out. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and pay attention to the next part? Or who may stand in His holy place? They would be reminded of this as they came in. And I I, I pose this to you because in my heart, I, I know many times I've come here before and I've been so distracted. I've been so comfortable just in showing up And I wonder if we ever really ask ourselves that question when we walk into the worship assembly. I also wonder, do we ask ourselves the same question when we walk out the door each day to worship with our bodies? And we know in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us that we are to be a living sacrifice every day with our bodies. Every day. And that is our reasonable service of worship. We worship every day, all day long. And the truth is, every time that we worship, Whether it be in church, whether it be work, school, over at the gym for the ball games, outdoors for the ball games, and whatever else we do, we go through the veil into the most holy place. We are in the presence of God right now. And I ask, what if, what if when we walked through the doors, wherever you come in, there was a literal veil right there? And what if every time you walked out your door, there was a literal veil every time you walked out of your door? could you confidently walk through it and say, I'm living for God first. He is my top priority. I will no longer be comfortable, and with mediocrity, I am going to give all that I give every day. Can we comfortably say that to ourselves? I want to tell you one last story, and then I'm going to be done for today. This is the story called The Temple is Out of Order. I read this recently. It's about a Christian man living in New York, and he had a, a a, friend, a lifelong friend, but his friend was a devout Jewish man. And the friend came to visit him and uh, he said, listen, I want to go and see this this beautiful temple, synagogue. I want to go and visit this place. Would you take me over there to see it? Of course I will. Yes, I'll take you. I'd love to go with you and, and see it. And so they went over there, but both of them were very disappointed because as they were there and, and looking, the first thing they saw was the scaffolding and other things like that. And Uh, They walked up, and there were steps leading up into the temple. And right there at the steps, there was a sign. And the sign read right before they walked in. It said, do not worship here. The temple is out of order. The Christian friend said to his Jewish friend, he said, I'm so sorry. I probably should have checked ahead. And he said, it's okay. Don't worry. You didn't know. But the Christian man said, that really bothered me. It pricked my heart. It cramped my heart for, for a long time to come, and I kept thinking about the same thing over and over again, and He said, this is what I was thinking. I was wondering if there aren't many days when that sign should be hanging around my neck. Don't expect to see Christ here. This temple is out of order. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it reads, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own. For we were bought at a price. The greatest price that could ever be paid for anyone. And then it tells us exactly what to do. Therefore, glorify God in your body and glorify God in your spirit. And I question... Can you confidently say that that is what you do? Can I confidently say that that is what I do? And I'm giving every effort that I can, and I'm living up to the potential that God placed in me. Today, honestly, this is like I am coming before you this morning in the invitation song. Because I want to tell you that today is going to be the eulogy of my mediocrity. I'm tired of it. And I want to be accountable to you and I want you to be accountable to me and I want us to be accountable to each other and I want us to be accountable to the world around us and to be the people that we are called to be. And I want us, when our life is over, every one of us in this room, when our life ends, I want people to say about us, they loved the Lord. You knew it. You saw it. They cared so deeply. You could tell that God was their first priority in their lives. But I would dare to say that many of you are like me. Maybe you've gotten to that place where you feel mediocre in your faith. You feel common and average. You feel like you've just gotten comfortable and you won't pass over any of those barriers. I want you to know that if you do choose to come down here this morning, I know that the elders and I know that myself, I will stand here with open arms with no judgment and complete empathy in my heart towards you because I know exactly how you're feeling. But what a day to make a change. There's no better time than the present. And I also want to say this, if you've never become a Christian before, and you really do feel like, my life has just been average and common and mediocre. There is a reason for that, and that is because you're not living the full potential that God has created for you for. I can't think of any better time than to say, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of living like this. I'm tired of being like this. I want to be what God can made me to be. I know I can. I know you can. And I know that we can be more. We need to be more. Because our Savior gave the greatest price. If there's anything that we can do for you this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing.